I mean, yes, look, the cultural aspects are really exaggerated, but he has a point that like, there is a major cultural difference in Korea and the U.S. And it, it you know, and it, it's it's not like loyalty to the government, but it's it is just like this basic, just I don't want to say like empathy, but like care about the well-being of your neighbor that just really doesn't exist at a large scale here. Alright, hello, welcome to Red Star Over Asia, the podcast that tries to cover politics over Asia from a socialist communist perspective. I am Bori, with here Mike, hello, Jay, what's up, and Jack. Howdy comrades. So today we're going to talk about the corona response, uh, no actually the responses to the corona, uh, like a comparative analysis between South Korea the U.S., and a couple other countries if we, we are able to cover them. So, yeah, let's start. What, how, how, would, how do you think that we can explain the, corona, the response to coronavirus in Korea, Jack? I do get the feeling that the comparatively, uh, compared to the rest of the world, uh, East Asia, East Asian countries have been doing relatively well uh well i I believe in the early stage of uh the pandemic uh, south korea was hailed as one of the better uh countries with their response so for the uh international audience uh south korea was doing pretty well and i believe south korea was doing pretty well early on but then the we had this uh, super spreader event in a church, uh, which rapidly piled up thousands of cases. And that was the beginning of uh, the uptick in our COVID cases, I believe. Yeah, the Xinjiangji kind of thing was a, a while back, yeah. Xinjiangji. Xinjiangji. Oh, yeah, Xinjiangji. Yeah. <laughs> We'll edit that out. Get my pronunciation correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're we're just all judging Mike. Still working on my Koreanness. Um, yeah, I think the the interesting thing to me about the coronavirus response is um, how a lot of national governments are having to resort to kind of like non neoliberal uh, state intervention and various tools, and there's been. I'm I'm curious, like after the coronavirus epidemic is over, how lo- how long that will last? Like, will there be a return to normalcy, or will these structures remain in place? Mm. Um, because you have you have a s- situation where s- some countries are essentially ha- like the U.S., for example, is essentially having to like uh, glue and paste together a half-assed public health infrastructure for the first time. So I'm curious what like how that's gonna last in the long term. South Korea has been more or less regarded of having a, done a good job uh, to the extent where there has been facile attempts in explaining why that is so, on why Taiwan, Hong Kong, Vietnam, China, South Korea, seems to all these Eastern Asian countries seems to be doing much better than the so-called developed countries in the West. And Sometimes the reason is brought up by using traditional Confucian yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah, cultural yeah. Expl- cultural <laughs> explanations uh, about the collectivism of South- of East Asian people that they listen to the government better and that's uh, that's why they wear masks and that's the whole that's the whole reason why they were able to respond to the coronavirus much better. Uh, but this kind of ignores uh, the relative successes of of in West Africa. This also ignores our New Zealand's uh, success in responding to the coronavirus, and it also is just a very shitty explanation. Because I think the most reasonable account I've gave I've I've encountered for this whole thing. Of, of this whole comparison is that 
South Korea in particular, uh, and with other East Asian countries as well, uh, we've had to respond to other epidemics, other diseases. And there's a basic infrastructure developed for that. And people have in living memory uh, a kind of... They've already been trained to a certain extent on how to react to this. Of course, the coronavirus is like... It, it was its own thing. The reason why it's spreading so much is because it it's really hard to trace. For example, uh, the previous epidemics we had were the mid Middle Eastern respiratory. Uh, I forgot the S, but it's MERS. And then there was the SARS. There was swine flu. There was the avian flu, um, and all these things through responding and trying to react to these epidemics the state has developed a capacity to respond to these things and people have also developed a memory to react to, to the government as well so all these things coinciding together we have a relative success that said uh, we can also move on to where the state has failed and this might be, I guess, flabbergasting to hear, listen to from when, if you're based in the UK or the US, uh, and we'll probably get to that. But yeah, the South Korean government has not been doing a great job in kind of regulating or uh, controlling the crisis that has come out from this corona pandemic. Also, uh, on on top of that, I would like to add that the. Um, many of those countries that uh, say uh, China or South Korea or Vietnam tend to be uh, highly militarized societies that have uh, you know a massive uh, war that ravaged their country in living memory. So I think uh, those countries are able to transition to a sort of a war economy on a very short scale of time. And also that the in case of, say, I think China and Korea, they have been uh, using their not so inconsiderable surveillance apparatus in dealing with the pandemic through contact tracing, through you know, tracking phone data and that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think there is a lot of... Uh, actually, like... Uh, being able to use those kind of, I think, something that the uh, liberals might call authoritarian measures. Well, yeah, there is a, I mean, what Bori just said about the these like sort of uh, orientalist sort of like cultural dumb explanations that you'll see on like CNN or whatever. It's like, yeah, they're just all Confucian hive mind people with no individuality and they just sort of collectively do whatever the government tells them to. I agree that's a totally dumb and like, uh, way to understand the situation, but there is an element of truth in the sense that, like, there are. I think the the U.S. Americans have like a a more extreme libertarian kind of way of being that you see playing out with people, like you know, risking uh, dying to go try to go to Applebee's. You know, <laughs> like I'm not going to wear a mask. I can't. You do have like this sort of like mass uh, non-compliance with like basic mask wearing and other things because i think there is like again like the in americans do have a unique kind of very extreme individualistic libertarian variation of liberalism so you don't have that in the same way in some other places in the world like south korea for example so i think that is a factor for sure um but you're right we do want to get away from like cultural reductionist explanations i was actually talking about institutional things yeah yeah rather than cultural like how the gov government has like protocols in place in in case of uh, like a disaster or a war to like say take control of certain sectors of the economy and that kind of stuff. Well, the U.S. did have something similar. I remember early on in the coronavirus, Donald Trump. I think I remember passed some kind of executive order that related to like war powers. Mm. I forgot. 
Did they ever use it though? I think it was mostly just to prevent the economy from collapsing, not really to um, keep the average American afloat the same way stimuluses did. But I think it was specifically it was in response to mask shortages mm. and um, hospitals being um, over capacity in certain areas. But I could be wrong about that. But actually, I do want to like tap. Mike is actually really onto something here about. I mean, yes, look, the cultural aspects are really exaggerated, but he has a point that like, there is a major cultural difference in Korea and the U.S. And, it, it, you know, and it, it's, it's not like loyalty to the government, but it's, it is just like this basic, just, I don't want to say like empathy, but like care about the well-being of your neighbor that just really doesn't exist at a large scale here. You know, like a, a good example is how, you know, in, um, when the COVID pandemic first like hit big in South Korea, all the businesses um, closed by themselves, even without government order because of like a lack of demand. Or, you know, you would more anecdotally hear stories about people would get publicly shamed if they didn't wear masks. That, that, that didn't really exist in the U.S. In the U.S. around the same time, you had people organizing what they called COVID parties. Yeah, are, yeah. So, <laughs> specific, specifically house parties using COVID as a theme. Well, to, to distance from that slightly, I would want to uh, recall that uh, we're, we're, when we need, when we want to explain the essence between the two uh, countries, we have to be, keep in mind that there are other Western countries that aren't, can't be described as libertarian. So it might be that the U.S. might have something specifically cultural in relation to people treating each other, people relating to the government, and stuff like that. But you can't say the same exactly for France or, say, Germany or for the U.K., and still, they fucked up big as well. So what, what, what would be the rationale behind that? Compared to the U.S. and its specific kind of libertarianism, which I would wager is very deeply tied to its settler colonial history and how uh, the middle class has been propagated and segregated uh, on racial divisions, and that creates a certain kind of mentality. That is certainly some sort of explanation that I would look deeper into. But I, I think it's kind of lacking to describe and explain the differences between the responses to corona solely on this difference between the US and Korea. Oh, well, you know, I mean by itself it's an insufficient explanation, but I do think there is a connection to it as to why the US government lacked the political will to very seriously enforce social distancing or lockdowns. Like a a good example right now there's a huge political battle happening in Chicago between the mayor, Lori Lightfoot, and the Chicago Teachers Unions about reopening schools. Specifically, the mayor is very adamant about trying to like reopen in-person schools. And the teachers unions, obviously, threatening to go on strike if that happens for um, very obvious reasons. Yeah, but the same thing is happening in the UK between the teachers union and Boris Johnson's administration. But can you explain that with libertarianism as well? Well, I think it's more of how are these politicians able to not only stay in power, but be able to implement these policies so nonchalantly. Because, for example, like compared to like countries like South Korea, a lot of European countries are not doing very well. But if you compare those countries in Britain or France to the U.S., it, it's it's just very difficult to compare to just the just the level of how badly things are in the U.S. right now. Like a good example is uh, where I used to live in Iowa. The uh, nickname they gave for the current governor, Kim Reynolds, is Kim Reaper, because against very, very um, public criticism and warnings, she fully reopened most schools in Iowa and went to our highest outbreak ever. So I, I would say that those are all uh, those are all things that needs to be explained in terms of. American exceptionalism of why no American exceptionalism is a wrong term. It's more of why America, why the U.S. fucked up so much as it did, rather than 
it being a solid basis for explanation between what the Korean government or what the particular conditions are in South Korea. Honestly, yeah, I was just gonna say like, I agree with that. I just think that the 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 reasons why certain countries handle the COVID pandemic better than others is a bit more um, holistic. You know, it includes institutional, but also like cultural explanations that did that influence why certain governments didn't have the political pressure to take the pandemic seriously compared to other countries. Like, um, I was thinking, like personally, I don't, I can't, I find it kind of difficult to see a politician in Korea be able to implement the, or like react to the pandemic in the same way as it in the U.S. without the very severe political fallout. Right. One thing too in the U.S. is it, it the coronavirus response has really revealed like how weak and just uh, how weak the federal like mm-hmm. system of government is at a basic level. Like in terms of like coordination between the federal government and various state administrations. I mean, it's been disastrous. Just in terms of like the federal government trying to allocate resources, working through state level state level institutions. It's been just yeah, it's been totally disjointed. Uh, whereas I think uh, Jack made a really good point that South Korea, having technically been in a war for the past 75 years, like does have this like there is like a uh, all these preparations in place and like ability to quickly mobilize resources in an emergency situation. And as Bori said before, there is a recent history of these pandemics kicking off every few years or so. So there's sort of like a people are more prepared and some of the groundwork for being able to deal with these things is, was already in place. So that is a big factor in this as well. Yeah, I think uh, also um, many of the other countries that have been successful in their COVID responses have been more central, like centralized states rather than federal. Mm-hmm. Vietnam or Cuba, for example. Yeah. Mm. So I think perhaps this pandemic is in a sense highlighting the we- like a weakness of federal system of government mm-hmm. that uh, if there is a nas- nationwide crisis, it's very difficult to mobilize uh, united and coordinated response. To an extent, I think that's right. But also the incompetency and the kind of uh, striking down attempts on in the local uh governments by the federal government under Donald Trump was kind of a counterexample to that. So it was not necessarily that uh, there was a lack of centralization, but precisely because of the federal government uh, striking down the attempts of the local governments that made it really hard to coordinate of efforts. So what I want to uh, keep on pushing back against is that when we speak of like the differences and uh, go into just glossing over them through a talk of the U.S. context and then the Korean context, it becomes cultural. So what I want to do is kind of insist in highlighting either a specific cultural straight that might exist on its own terms or keep on pointing out the institutional things that uh, are less apparent. Because if a tourist comes into Korea and experiences the differences, that usually comes across as cultural differences. That's how we experience things. But that's more immediate and that's the kind of immediate knowledge that we acquire. But in, in this podcast, I hope we can kind of push up against that. That's where all the cultural differences, uh, opinions pulled out of various columnists' asses come from, <laughs> from directly trying to extrapolate their experiences and firsthand, or even not even firsthand, thirdhand experiences into a coherent explanation. Uh, so one of the specific Korean in, uh institutions that might show the mentality of institutions behind it are the text messages that are constantly being sent every day, like 10 times a day, 
even more so than that. And whenever it, it it's being sent by the uh the central disaster response center, and then whenever it comes when you're in an office or even if you're in a public setting, then all the phones start ringing off at once. And and you can see a similar kind of mentality. I've 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 read of this observation by an anthropologist. Uh, you, when you go into government homepages, you get all these pop-ups that just uh, you have to click away through and uh, click the "Don't show off up today" button so that when you refresh the page, they don't pop up all over again. And then you can also see this kind of mentality when uh, when you're in your apartment building and the uh, what is it the uh, darn it I don't know the term in English. Jack, can you help like me? A, like a, when the security office at the apartment has like public service announcement every now and then. Sure. Yeah, when they have a broadcast. It just barges in. So what? What all these things, three things have in common is that they just barge in. This is this is a, a peculiar institutional setting that is uh, unique to Korea, or at least according to the anthropologist observing the differences between Korea and France. It is unique. The first time that I heard the speaker announcement thing within an apartment, I was not aware that I had a speaker in my apartment. So it like freaked me the hell out. It was like, uh, you know, that one of the scenes from like 1984 where the, the TV starts talking and does your like two minutes of hate propaganda. And I was like, where the hell? I didn't, I couldn't figure out where the speaker was. There was just this booming voice coming from the ceiling. It's a Confucian dystopia. Yeah, uh, that is very unique. Now, now you could say that okay, but if the information is crucial, then it's something, isn't it? No, I'm not complaining. I was just saying I was very surprised the first time it happened because I didn't know what it was. But, but Mike, maybe. But what I want to say is that the information that is sent out by barging into personal spaces is stupid. It's usually very redundant. So one example I can give out, a personal anecdote, is that in our apartment, they're, kind, they're in the process of figuring out which apartments in the building have uh, dysfunctional speakers. And the way they try to find out is by broadcasting and asking the, asking the people living at that moment in the apartment whether their speakers are working. And if they're not, <laughs> to... Uh, let <laughs> the security office know, and that's not possible if they're not working in the first place. How would you know that there was a broadcast going on if your speaker wasn't working? <laughs> right, right. So, like these basic things aren't aren't thought out through. Uh, what what happens is that because there are already the capacity for state to just barge in. Well, in department uh, example, it's not precisely the state but this sort of bureaucratic centric institution uh that has already been pervasive of uh, south korea has been through military dictatorships until the late 80s and even after that even after formal democratization they uh another military strong person was elected but anyhow this 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 sort of culture of of the government barging in is still a thing. You can see this in your everyday lives. Uh, Mike uh, brought up the analogy to 1984. And although it's not that dystopian and it's much more, uh, it's almost, you can't, you're not conscious about it, but if you, if a sudden, if someone sort of brings it up, then it's becomes apparent. It's, I think we want to focus on these sort of differences that indicate a deeper institutional political history uh, that is peculiar to Korea, at least when we're talking about Korea. Uh, these things might apply or not to other East Asian countries, but, uh, but, the, but as Jack kept on insisting, the issue isn't... <laughs> the issue isn't... Uh, authoritarianism at the cultural level that is a thing but that is 
an effect of the ways that the institutions are organized, of the political histories of how the uh, institutions were developed in the first place. So these things are effects that are needed to be explained. And when we say that authoritarianism is what explains, this is just begging the question. And that's what I was trying to keep on insisting till now. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. What, what is actually is the history of like the, the text alert system? Like when was that started? Like the emergency alerts that are sent through text message? When was that system set up? Do you, any of you guys know? So I'm I'm not I'm not completely aware of that, but it I think it it so it's been it's not a completely new thing because set up during the corona pandemic. It's a thing that has been fully utilized to this extent because of the corona pandemic. But it had existed. So uh during the spring and autumn uh in Korea you have light a lot of fine dust. So this emergency text system would alert you of uh, like a massive influx of yellow dust from, say, China. That would be one thing. I, I would get into the racism of that kind of alert system and the discourse around it as well. But And then uh, when a hurricane is coming up, the local regions... Uh, that the hurricane is supposed to pass through get alerted of that as well uh, when there's massive rains or like very strong winds that's also alerted as well but it wasn't utilized to this extent it was never like 20 times a day uh, and for regarding the corona emergency alerts it's 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 another stupid thing because say I'm uh, going to work and and passing through the various regions that are set up so, uh, so, so let me stop here and try to explain what the uh, emergency alert system is so what it does is that it alerts you of corona uh, infectees around the region that you're currently in and how many people uh, and you can you also are provided a link to a homepage to see uh, the travel pathway that they, that infectee had gone through but the stupid thing is is that it's it's not provided based upon uh, where you live or where you work it's just uh, geographically locating your you based upon your cell phone signal and then just providing the you information from the region that you are currently in so even if you're passing through a certain district through bus and you don't have any contact with any of the infectees there then you still are provided information and then another thing to consider is that you can only be aware of being infected after the fact so by the time that you've the authorities have been alerted that there has been an infectee in that region then it's that that information has been a thing of the past so when you're just passing through the bus it really isn't crucial information to you at all and still you are provided with that information and the thing with these emergency text messages is that you can't technically turned it off turned it off like in an official capacity you can kind of find a way to configure your phone to uh, shut them off but I haven't figured out how and it's it just uh, come through whatever software you're if you were watching a YouTube video it would kind of pause the video and show up show the text message it would do the same for whatever other activity you would be doing with your phone I was able to turn them off um... I turn them off on my phone. I don't get them anywhere. Uh, I guess this, this it's maybe being an American. I guess I have that libertarian streak where I just want to be blissfully unaware of uh, emergency <laughs> alerts, but it is possible to turn them off. This is why Koreans discriminate against foreigners, and I think they have a right <laughs> <laughs> I actually want to touch on that specifically. I remember... Um, 
Who was was anyone in Korea when the MERS outbreak happened? I was not. Yeah. All right. Because I was, I remember I was in high school in Guangzhou, and I remember all of the American teachers used to say like, "Oh, when the MERS outbreak first happened, oh, this is an example of Koreans being so paranoid. It's not going to affect us. Everyone's so scared." And I kind of, I remember thinking about that again when COVID happened, because the same thing happened. Was remember the U.S. Everyone was like, "Ah, COVID. It's just that that thing in China, right?" You know, and it, even when it hit Korea, it's like, "Ah, it's, it's never going to hit us." And when it actually did hit America, you know, people started wearing masks again. And even then, there was some controversy about that. Like, I remember when I first wore a mask when COVID hit, the nurse actually told me to take it off because that's what the uh, the CDC said. Yeah, I remember they were telling people not to wear masks, right? Because they were, was it the, in the U.S., they were trying to, like, uh, prioritize giving masks for medical staff? Or what was the rationale behind that? Yeah, I think one of the... One of the reasons was there is a mask outbreak because obviously people started hoarding. And in South Korea, that was that was originally, I mean, boy, my Korean is, is South Korea. That was originally an issue until the government got involved to make sure that mask prices stayed both stable and also that people were rationing masks instead of, you know, buying 10 packs and putting them in their basement or, you know, selling them for a marked up prices. So... In, in South Korea, every citizen has this, uh, they're registered and they have an identity, uh, a unique identity number. And based upon, I think, the year you were born, you were uh, designated a certain day of the week where you could b- go to the pharmacy and buy a mask. And that was how the government kind of rationed the masks in the first place kind of by not allowing people to buy masks and even when you were able to go to the pharmacy and buy a mask you you would be limited to how many you could buy so so yeah these things these interventions worked so people i guess more or less understood the reason why uh the reason why these measures were required yeah, though you mentioned hoarding, which one thing that I've always found interesting in the U.S., whenever there's any sort of looming disaster, pandemic, natural disaster, tornadoes, hurricanes, toilet paper is always sells out and people hoard the toilet paper, which I don't know how to unpack that as like a metaphor for explaining American psychology. But I don't know. Maybe Zizek has some, th- some hot take on that. But <laughs> it, it is like yeah, the hoarding thing, too. That That is a thing that plays out in the U.S. In Korea, I guess... Maybe there was some hoarding going on with masks, but there was this like quick rationing system implemented. I remember using that. Yeah, you had to go on a certain day of the week. I think you could buy two masks at a time. Um, again, the, there's the mechanisms for implementing something like that very quickly aren't quite there in the U.S. in terms of to get back to the federal like uh, system of government we have, where there's always like you know you'll have the federal government like fighting with a state governor about like basic uh, pandemic response stuff. And it, it, it makes coordination and distribution of resources uh, very messy. Uh, whereas in South Korea, that it seems to be a lot more streamlined in terms of, you know, provincial governments like cooperating with the central authorities. So I guess since we've talked about the relative successes of the South Korean government, we, sh- we should we should uh, kind of designate some time to shit talk it as well. <laughs> uh, so what the what the Moon administration is doing horribly wrong is that it's the state interventions are somewhat rational uh if we compare it to a shithole of a country like the u.s but it's still basically quite liberal so it's liberal in the sense of the most utmost priorities are trying to make the economy run smoothly and in in so far the economy runs smoothly the prioritized are the landlords big businesses and etc. So it's not the socially excluded, the social minorities who are usually who are always the ones that are hit hurt, uh, the the hit worst in these sort of crises. But these people aren't given priorities. So an example would be the homeless in Seoul, and despite 
like the homeless being homeless have less access to uh, medical institutions um and it's it's quite hard for them to keep sanitary but but these bur the bureaucratic measures would prevent the homeless from uh getting health care because for example uh they weren't homeless long enough or and like other related issues so these people are just set aside and not really t put, taken into consideration at all and the bureaucratic measures that violently remo remove them uh, from being able to live a sort of sustainable isn't the word I'm looking here for here uh, like at least a bare minimum the, uh, the violence that removes them from that possibility is only exacerbated uh during during this time so anti-poverty -po uh activist groups had been uh talking about these issues for quite a time and they've just said that the corona pandemic has just accelerated the processes of excluding social minorities uh, and you can see that happening uh in in the workplaces as well so so a horrid example would be that uh so there was a corona uh there was an outbreak in a certain workplace and everyone was notified of it except for a woman who had uh recently gone through the due processes for uh for what is it for trying to report sexual harassment so there was workplace bullying and the entire company had kind of uh, joined together to bully that woman by excluding her from the by from withholding from her the information that uh, an outbreak had happened wow. uh, and then in other workplaces uh, like there was a big outbreak in a call center uh, those because every the business had to continue as usual, uh, people were stuffed into in indoor places, and even with having masks, the call centers being call centers, people having to talk a lot that uh, brings out saliva, and d this is the uh, primary infection route. Uh, the precautions weren't taken up. And you can see these examples all over the country. <coughs> uh, and the, the cherry on top, the icing, uh, would be that the at the end of last year, the all these uh, social movements in South Korea had organized ar together around the law to uh, punish companies for uh, letting industrials disasters happen in the first place but the law that got passed was a law that excluded small workplaces uh, where most of the Korean workforce is in small workplaces are workplaces with less than five people and that's where 40% of the workplace happened or uh, works at and also where most of industrial disasters happen as well so even during the corona pandemic where the poor the socially excluded social minorities were hit worst uh and where social movements were trying to pass a law that would kind of allow companies uh to be, be to be held responsible for allowing these outbreaks to happen in the first place, the Moon administration kind of sabotaged law for a toothless law to get passed at at the final instance. So, uh, this I haven't even brought up the criticisms the public and health uh, trade unions had made of the Moon administration of not setting up uh, the appropriate measures for an extended. Uh, a corona outbreak uh, duration, I guess, uh, and etc. 
but I, I'm, I'm talking too much here. Well, one thing that's interesting to me is that various national governments in South Korea, but I guess I'm particularly thinking about the UK and the US, are having to resort to, again, sort of like non-neoliberal state measures in order to contain the epidemic. So I'm curious to see how much of that of those systems are going to remain in place after the pandemic is over. Like, for example, the <coughs> stimulus payments, um, which is sort of a, a tepid kind of experiment with universal basic income. It's kind of setting a, there's now a precedent for these sort of direct cash payments to people. So that's going to be, having set that precedent is going to be difficult to take it back. Like, for example, a lot of the resistance to additional stimulus payments in the U.S. from the Republicans in Congress and some Democrats has basically been that fear. It's like once we start doing this, it's going to set a precedent for people and they're going to expect more state intervention, uh, more assistance, you know, uh, talking about Medicare for all and these other things. Um, I think they don't want people to get a taste of what social programs can feel like. So I don't know. I'm, I think that's one thing to talk about with the coronavirus pandemic is uh, what are going to be the long-term consequences in terms of uh, some minor reversals and austerity? And You're talking about the future implications post-pandemic, and especially taking into account what Boris said about how the Moon government has reacted to COVID. It kind of feels like there's more of a priority about virus containment than actually the protecting the well-being of the community. And specifically, what I was thinking about is like, how is Korea's economy functioning during the pandemic? And I was thinking about the recent deaths of a warehouse, uh, fulfillment center worker in, De in Daegu. Um, his name is um, Jang Dog Jun. And you know, it's, a, it's a pretty horrific example. The, this young man, who I, I believe was in his 20s, essentially died from overwork. And it brought up these questions about how basically is Korea's economy being kept alive by extreme labor exploitation as always as always you know, especially yeah isn't that just capitalism yeah but especially if from like an American example the main kind of perspective of Korea is this is an example of good government in action mm. you know right is an example of, of the government taking getting involved to contain the virus a sophisticated bureaucracy a relatively like I, I don't want to say generous safety net but compared to the u.s where you know we are still fighting for a two thousand dollar check in march uh the idea about the government actually paying your salary if you are if you need to be um what's the word um quarantine is just such a like foreign concept to the u.s but like that doesn't necessarily mean that this isn't a an example of good government in action, that this is not what we should be aiming towards. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like, yeah, in the US, I think people are just like, wow, those uh, Confucian collectivists over in East Asia really know how to get their shit together. <laughs> Whereas, um, yeah, it does, it does sort of obscure the fact that like this particular sector of workers, delivery workers, coupon, etc., in the warehouse or delivery drivers like that sec group of workers is being like hyper exploited i mean there's been several deaths by overwork from uh, i think coupon coupon workers um so yeah that's an interesting point one thing that i think about too in terms of the long lasting uh implications of the pandemic is as a teacher i worry a lot about the effect this is going to have on children like in the sense that one they're like key young years are not being spent at school learning how to socialize with other people and talk to other children and just also uh, wearing masks and like, like, uh, I don't know, are, are children going to have like a difficult time, like reading people's faces and like kind of picking up on like subtle social cues if they spent a lot of their early years, first grade, second grade on Zoom and not interacting with people directly? I don't know. I'm, that's one thing that really bothers me about this pandemic is how, what is the effect on like children going to be in the, in the long term, if that makes any sense. No, I mean, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, a lot of people forget that the alt-right started out online, you know, it's, it started out through Gamergate. And mm. I think, I think one of the major like factors in that is it's, it's, it's much 
easier to not be empathetic online. You know, it's much easier to just you like you wouldn't act towards a person you met face to face the same way you would on Twitter or Facebook. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, it's it wasn't too much of a big deal when you had the choice to just walk around in school or at a bar, but when you have people at a very like young, re mentally um, sensitive age, you know, this is going to be a, a major definitive point. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm worried about just like a, a new generation of socially inept Reaganites, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is on my mind. Well, and also the, uh, I mean, Japan, for example, registered a month where there were more deaths by suicide than coronavirus. So, I mean, you have a lot of young people that uh, substance abuse is going through the roof in the U.S., for example. Um, suicide rates, et cetera. So um, there's like a, I mean, there's like a cat- catastrophic social consequences with the the lockdowns and all of that. So that those effects, I think, other than uh, the most recently brought up example of suicides and mental health, I think uh, take for granted that we're we'll return to a normal of before when the corona outbreak happened but i'm kind of skeptical if that if that time will ever come in the first place so we all know that smallpox was eradicated effectively because the vaccines were distributed and uh throughout the world because uh, i guess the developed countries kind of did a calculus on uh whether distributing the vaccines and allowing the economy to function was cheaper than just letting these things spread uh, perpetually. Sadly, it seems like they no longer do the calculations now. Uh, so, so well, yeah, national competition. Vaccines are being distributed only uh, after every else, everyone else has bought them up, and. Even then, uh, vaccines are being led to their expiration date because they aren't being effectively distributed where in the countries that they've been bought up in the first place. So this kind of forces the virus to mutate, not to mention the virus already mutating where the vaccines aren't distributed. And the vaccines, if they're if they're like, sorry, I'll, I'll finish soon. Uh, if the vaccines... They have an expiration date, not in until they're like actually used, but even after they're used, uh, you have like a one-year period where this vaccine works against a particular strand of the virus that's circulating. But if the vac- if the virus uh, then mutates, then we'll have m- mul- multiple strands that might be even more deadly, but also that is resistant to the vaccines that have been developed to that point. So the way that this is being vaccinated is doesn't look very uh, promising. So we might be facing a long period where uh, various strands of the coronavirus uh, circulate in one region or another. So uh, reading social cues through masks might be the new norm and children might be just getting accustomed to that. So this kind of worrying about uh, being socially inept in the context of what was before the coronavirus might be misplaced, we might have to be even more pessimistic that they have to read social cues and this is going to be how things are getting done in the first place. It's a horrifying thought. Yeah, indeed. It's not just uh, corona. Because uh, if we look at the rate at which new pandemics arrive, it's been mostly accelerating. So sooner or later, so even perhaps before the coronavirus pandemic is, uh, say, dealt with properly, there might be a new pandemic to come. What would the... Uh, there's a really good article in the monthly review called uh, COVID-19 and the Circuits of Capital, which is talking about uh, how practices in capitalism, say, uh, you know, deforestation, climate change, destruction of habitats of animals uh, forces uh, a lot of uh, animal species that uh, previously did not have contact with uh, humanity to 
come into contact with us and basically giving us pathogens that uh, we did not uh, have any contact with previously. And uh, practices like factory farming or a high rate of urbanization basically gives pathogens a massive petri dish to breed and mutate at a unprecedented rate compared to you know prior that that kind of development so if we continue uh depredation of uh the i guess ecosystem as we are con- doing right now then it will only return with more and more and faster and faster pandemics exactly uh we're the vaccine vaccination might have seemed like the light at the end of the tunnel but as zizek likes to say that light might as well be the train running towards us. So we need to hope, we need to not hold our expectations high and be very humble about where the future lies. Yeah, so dear listeners, if you want to take your mask off, destroy capitalism. All right, well, that, that's a good wrap up on the coronavirus question. Uh, I think before we go, though, I'm curious what you guys think. Uh, so we have mayoral elections coming up in seoul and busan for listeners who may not be aware the two largest parties or two largest cities in south korea uh have are have vacant uh the the mayor's position is vacant due to some me too kind of related sexual harassment issues um so i don't know what do you guys think is going to happen with the mayoral elections so so i'm i'm kind of it's complicated because the Justice Party decided not to uh, put forward any candidates because the leader of the Justice Party had did sexually harassed uh, one of the assembly members of the Justice Party. Yeah. And that kind of, I guess, destroyed the basis, the moral high ground for the Justice Party to put forward a candidate in the first place. But then again, uh, it is a lot of progressive and the left uh, have. It's it's been a it's been through a lot of controversy on whether that was the case in the first. Uh, whether this was a legitimate concern in whether that kind of bull high ground was the basis for the Justice Party trying to contend these mayor positions because uh, because it's still a minor party. The Justice Party wasn't looking forward to actually getting elected. It was trying to put forward crucial agendas and issues into the election race and the coverage so to create the uh, discursive space for social movements to exploit further uh and also the issue of what do justice party members and supporters now what do they vote for now uh but since the leader because the justice party had decided not to contend in those vacant spots i really don't know uh that's why it's complicated for me i guess yeah the only thing going through my mind as i'm reading those news is stop putting your dicks in my goddamn politics <laughs> seriously what's with all those sexual harassment scandals oh. keep popping up over and over again? yeah not just in south korea too there's been a spate of them uh yeah on the left generally it seems like um i don't know if it's just well, it's not just the left it's just everywhere it's just only in the left that it's revealed your industry government i guess the right uh right wing is better at it yeah i don't know if it's well i mean we know why it doesn't affect the right i mean it wasn't that long ago where the word legitimate rape came from in the gop well yeah i think the inc the it seems like it does feel like there's an increase in these instances happening with like in left organizations and social movements etc in the u.s and elsewhere but i uh, to put an optimistic spin on it, maybe it's because simply because people pay attention and t- to this stuff more and take it more seriously. Not that the it's actually occurring more than in the past. Um, so. Yeah, uh, you can read about accounts decades ago where you can see the same shit happening. I mean, yeah. uh, basically, Lenin covered off uh, the rape cans, uh, rape case in the Bolsheviks. So these are these are 
uh, the cultural attitudes of millennia that have only been being taken up seriously recently. Uh, but the sad thing about the Justice Party incident is that that leader had been gone through all the feminist educations, all the uh, all the uh, workshops. Like he knew what was wrong and why, and like there there are absolutely no excuses for that. And still, and not just of a it, it wouldn't have made it any better, but it wasn't like a he committed it against a uh, an assembly member so you can see the extent of male chauvinism uh, prevailing it in, in South Korea e and so the, the, the I guess this sort of slogan is uh, I get have the entirety of the leadership yeah non men because that generation overall might be hopeless. I, I think one thing that at least comes to my mind about that is, well, at least because there's been similar conversations in the U.S., is that it shows the insufficiency of just like purely educational responses. Like we think about like sexual harassment or racial harassment workshops in, in businesses. You know, I mean, the most kind of famous example right now is like Robin D'Angelo's like main form of, I don't want to call it activism, but her main um, solution to harassment in the workplace is seen as educating people in power and not trying to confront that there are these very systemic institutions of power that make ex this form of exploitation so so casual. I guess one one crucial difference between the U.S. and South Korea is that uh, although prominent liberal feminists were taken up into the government and you can see that during the Pawans and the solo mayors be to uh, 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 rel relevation uh, that the liberal feminists had kind of let the mayor in the know on that he was being me too'd and that's why he committed suicide and that shows the extent of collaboration between the leadership of the liberal feminists but it hasn't been fully incorporated so there is still this radical edge to feminism in south korea uh whether whereas in the u.s uh, to the extent that it doesn't talk about class and class struggle anti uh, anti-racism and feminism have been completely liberalized and defanged so the educations and the workshops that i've brought up aren't aren't we shouldn't imagine them as these human resource resource bullshit uh stuff that liberals like to uh go through without ever challenging their own views on stuff i i i understand i, I agree with what you're saying bore i just don't know if barring the I forgot what was the the generation that 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 they were called in Korea. I forgot the um the, the numbers. Five eight sixers. Yeah, I don't know. If, like barring five eight sixers from leadership positions is the correct. So maybe it is. I I just genuinely don't know. But no, it's it's not like age restriction as such. It's more of uh completely changing the composition of leadership and allowing the youth to uh fill those uh, roles up. Yeah. <laughs> Forced retirement. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that is exactly we're talking about kind of like age restrictions on leadership positions might be tricky, but I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, like the older generation could serve as like advisory role uh, with their experience, while the younger generation could have you know more authority, perhaps. Because you know, it's like generally, the older men got all the power and authority, and which is why they do this kind of shit but they do this kind of shit even when they don't so oh yeah true <laughs> so it's a thorny issue i i guess we should set up an, a, a separate episode for this um mm. there's so much to be talked about and yeah today's uh today's subject was more about responses to the coronavirus yeah that deserves a full 
prepared conversation. So we should put that Episode. bookmark that for the future. Absolutely. All right, comrades. As we said before, if you want to take off your mask, destroy capitalism, and like and subscribe to our podcast, share it widely. <laughs>